Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and today we're going to talk about the economic landscape of our state and how to keep young people from leaving after they finish their education. Our guests are Mark Akers, who teaches law and public policy in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Carol Rogers, Deputy Director and Information Officer for the uh, Indiana Business Research Center and adjunct in the School of Journalism, and also here, of course, is Mary Catherine Carmichael. Hi, Bob. Welcome back. I missed you last week. Yeah, but you did a great job. I got to hear a little bit of it on my travels. Oh, okay. Well, thanks. Stan, he was great. Yeah. You know, this is your seat, honey. <laughs> well, if you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. So, Carol, Mark, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. I think I probably shorted you on your title of various things that you do. So, Oh, it, well, I teach many courses yeah, other right. than, than, uh, than law and public affairs course. Right, I, yes. I teach I, economics and finance over at University of Indianapolis and some other courses, uh, urban structure and some other things for SPE as well. We're well known for shorting our guests on their introductions. <laughs> <laughs> Which, well, actually, we're just lucky we have such good guests that they you know, deserve the, and have earned uh, more introduction than we can give them. That's right. Okay, well, let's talk about the sort of the economic uh, landscape, I guess, but I, let's just jump right into the whole tr- – this, this uh, notion of brain drain, I know, Carol, when I mentioned it before, you, you've sort of cringed at the term, but um, can you sort of define it for me? What do people mean when they refer to the brain drain? Well, I think essentially what they mean is that we're, we're losing our uh, best educated people. Uh, they're, they're leaving the state as in uh, draining our population of, of uh, perhaps the best and brightest is often the connotation. Yeah, and we, so what's the problem? <laughs> well, we hear. Well, first of all, is it true? I mean, we, we hear that we hear that term a lot. Is is that happening more rapidly for Indiana than for say the surrounding states? It, it's certainly not happening more rapidly or proportionally than than other states, uh, perhaps except Illinois. Uh, huh. Illinois has Chicago. Uh, they're they're going to wind up uh, attracting a much larger group of those uh, top level uh, professionals. I think the issue for Indiana, though, is that it gets a little muddled because we're uh, first. I should point out a major importer of freshmen. Uh, we rank third or fourth in the country in net import of freshmen, along with Massachusetts and and Pennsylvania. Part of that is the draw of our 80-plus colleges and, and universities. Uh, and so we get a lot of these people migrating here just to get an education, and they graduate and they leave. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at population numbers for, say, the, the 24 uh, to 30 age group, you're going to often see declines there uh, that are really buttressed by the fact that those people didn't live here to begin with, mm-hmm. not not in the mm-hmm. usual sense of the word. I think an issue uh, really is that we have to look at ways of keeping uh, the more of those students here. And I think there's confusion about job availability. I know when I talk to my students, and Mark, you and I were talking about this before, uh, there's a perception that we don't have the jobs that they want. Mm-hmm. Well, when I talk, I talk to my students every semester. I've done these kind of informal surveys for, for a long time. And uh, in probably, oh, five, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, someplace in the upper 60s to around 70 percent, when I would ask the question, where do you want to start your careers, uh, in that range would, would say someplace other than Indiana. Uh, it's kind of inching up a little bit. And when I ask why or what do you want to do, and uh, the, or why would you go those places? And the, and the main reason, the number one reason, typically is jobs. That they have a perception that the that the jobs are someplace else. Number two reason often ends up being family, and probably for what uh, the reason Carol has just uh, talked about. But then there's reasons like lifestyle, the oceans, mountains, mm-hmm. warm weather, those kinds of things too, which you see in, in a lot of uh, younger people in particular. But the brain drain, and Carol kind of alluded to it, is not uh, evenly distributed around Indiana. You can see pockets of it uh, if you look at any map and, and do, the, do the numbers of it. And it's not universally just a, among young people, uh, college age or just after college. Uh, there, there's a number of different age groups that, are, that uh, we're losing, but we're also gaining in some too as well. 
Mm-hmm. But and, and I sounded sarcastic before, but but why is it a problem, really? Oh, why is losing that population a problem? Well, uh, because of the other uh, perception, you know, the students might perceive there aren't jobs. The other perception that conflicts with that is employers who say we need those people. Mm-hmm. Where are they going? Why can't? Why aren't they coming to work uh, for us? And there needs to be a way to get those two talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, I know that uh, in your bio, part, a lot of your career has been spent in economic development. Mm-hmm. You've, you've uh, worked on lots of projects trying to create jobs for Indiana, including Subaru plant in Lafayette, General Motors assembly plant in Fort Wayne, the Hummer plant in Mishawaka, a lot of these. Are these the kinds of jobs that uh, we need in Indiana that would, that would keep these young people here? Well, manufacturing is changing dramatically. Uh, manufacturing uh, has not been something that we've tried to really push with young people either. Uh, we have always talked about high-tech kind of jobs and, and jobs of the future kind of thing, but you rarely see anybody going into high schools or colleges and saying, come to work at General Motors in our assembly plants or things like that. Uh, and to be honest, those jobs are going to be changing rather dramatically. The advanced manufacturing efforts that the, that the Indiana state government is trying to uh, uh, do is to attract and, and uh, attract those kinds of manufacturing operations, but also help existing employers change their functions so that they can compete, competing with China, India, South America, Eastern Europe, those kind of places. Uh, it's all about productivity. That has to do productivity, not only has to do with the machines, but with the skill of the people that operate those machines. Uh, and so, yeah, we need to do some things with manufacturing. That's been our base for a long time. Indiana probably has the highest percentage of its workforce in manufacturing than any state. So when things go bad in manufacturing like they are now, we tend to lose an awful lot of jobs mm-hmm. compared to other states. So let's say you're a, a recent graduate of Purdue University with a degree in, um, I don't know, mechanical engineering. Are you going to find a job in the state of Indiana if you, if you wish? Uh, sure. But it depends on the kind of job. You have to have the job for your skill, for your, your, your talent and your interest, that sort of thing. And those are kind of, again, unevenly distributed around the state and around the nation. Uh, so it kind of depends on what you, you end up finding out there. Uh, in the future, it's just going to be changing. When I was in China, I saw what was happening over there. And, uh, and it's going to really put pressure on our workforce. Uh, and in what way? Well, um, the average cost uh, – the, the, the city I teach in over there is a city called Ningbo. It's what they consider a medium to, to small to medium-sized city. It's five and a half million people. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's largely an industrial manufacturing business, business town. Uh, the students that I teach over there are basically come from business families. Um, and uh, those students, uh, those, the, uh, many, of those, many of those industries are in the uh, chemi- chemicals. They're also in fabrics, cloth, those kind of things. Uh, some manufacturers of clothing and that are the U.S. manufacturers of clothing and, and re- related items are there. The average uh, uh, wage rate of garment workers or uh, f- garment uh, manufacturers here in the United States probably is in the $17, $18 an hour range. Uh, in Ningbo, it's around $1, uh, and it's gone up to that. And so it's very difficult for the United States and the industries that we have here to make up that kind of productivity difference, the cost of what it takes you to make something. Uh, uh, we don't have enough government programs. We don't have enough tax incentives. We don't have enough regulations we can get rid of to make up that difference. Mm-hmm. And so the pressures that we have on our manufacturers to increase their productivity is going to be enormous for, for a while. And they have a lot of people coming in from the countryside into these cities, so the wage rates, the competition for those jobs is going to continue to keep those wage rates low. Mm-hmm. All right, our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Our guests today are Mark Akers, who teaches in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Carol Rogers, the Deputy Director and Information Officer for the Indiana Business Research Center. Um, Mary Catherine mentioned Purdue. So, Carol, I'm going to ask you, uh, I know you have a lot of data on IU graduates and where IU graduates are going. I mean, do you have any comparisons between 
whether there is a, a like more rapid brain drain from IU students versus Purdue students. I mean, they, they have sort of different specialties in some ways. Are more IU students choosing to leave the state than Purdue students, or do you have that kind of data? Well, I don't, I don't have that kind of data uh, at hand specifically, but I do think that uh, certainly the disciplines that uh, Purdue focuses on uh, are uh, many of which agriculture, uh, engineering, uh, veterinary science, things like that. Uh, there are a significant number of jobs in Indiana. Uh, IU uh, has a heavy emphasis, uh, not entirely, but a heavy emphasis on, on what we might call the creative uh, disciplines. Mm-hmm. And so there's a tendency to see more of those graduates go uh, across the country or mm-hmm. around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's positive for, for IU and I think for all of our universities is that uh, we've seen that Indiana University life sciences graduates are staying in much larger proportions a recent survey that we did showed that a majority of them, uh, well over uh, 50%, are staying in Indiana mm-hmm. uh, and taking life sciences-type jobs. Carol, um, this may be a little bit too specific for you to be able to answer, so if, if that's true, I apologize in advance. But I've always been curious about the graduates from the Jacobs School of Music. You know, we turn out these amazingly um, well-trained and talented musicians, and then I wonder, well— you know, how many opportunities are there for them to use those skills in Indiana or must they go elsewhere? Well, if you think about the nature of, of uh, music, whether it's composing or actually playing an instrument, uh, it, it's automatically, I would think, uh, seen as a mobile job. You know, one where, where you may be migrating from city to city mm-hmm. uh, or city orchestra to city orchestra. We do have uh, many music opportunities in Indiana, mm-hmm. but probably not as large as if you went to New York, mm-hmm. for example, or mm-hmm. perhaps to L.A. So I, I think there are a number of disciplines in the arts that uh, really do require the person to think about the fact that they're going to have to travel a lot. Okay. Now, w- with the uh, life sciences graduates, you said that there's a high percentage that are staying mm-hmm. in the state. What are some of the areas where maybe a low percentage of graduates are staying in the state? I suppose music would be one of them. Uh, yeah, certainly what, what we've seen is the uh, folks who are getting uh, music, art, drama, communications degrees that, that a larger uh, proportion are leaving, and many of them are clustering in larger cities across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you see the coastal effect, uh, east and west coast, uh, some of it uh, clustering around Seattle, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Minneapolis. Uh, Chicago has uh, continued to be a big draw uh, for students in Indiana. And so we do see a lot of migration uh, going to that city. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask sort of a general question, I guess. And I know, Mark, you've talked to lots and lots of students about, you know, where what, what they see as, uh, you know, attractive uh, locations for their future and whatnot. But um, have, we, have students changed in terms of what they're after when they come to the university like IU? They come to, to IU, they, they get a degree, and then they want to start their life. Are there, are there different factors involved with where they might want to go to work? Or is it always just I've gotten this job or this uh, training for a job and I'm going to go where the job is? Probably job is the number one. They, they, it's probably not the only thing on their list mm-hmm. um, because they will – if I had to – when I asked them, where do you want to do this, if I had to categorize these places, um, there would be two or three different places. One would be on the East Coast from New York down through maybe Georgia, New York, Washington, uh, you know, down through Atlanta and some you know, all that East Coast area. Uh, some want to go to the far west. California is probably the number one place, Southern California, but it, you also have some Oregon and Washington type of places. And then that mid, kind of halfway out there, Colorado, maybe Texas down through that area. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with those kind of things, but it, but it also has to do with maybe lifestyle and what they think is there. They have some sort of, of a desire to be around other young people, and they see a lot of their friends or a lot of their acquaintances or just their perception that this is a young city, kind of a vibrant place kind of thing, a lot of things to do. Uh, younger people have that desire to do things. 
They don't just like to go home and, you know, sleep, get up. And <laughs> Have a lovely meal and go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, but uh, keep in mind that they do eventually. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the trends we see in the, the demographics is that there, there is a, a tendency for these folks to come back. Some, some of them do. Some of them do. Have, and, and by the way, that, that, uh, that brings up a, a point in my mind. Uh, from time to time, I will talk to politicians about this sort of thing. Different. I, I used to work for uh, one governor and have talked to many others on, along the way. And one of the one of the things that I have thought about is that there are there are some disciplines in Indiana where we just don't have many jobs. Uh, we don't have employment opportunities for some of the people who have those skills, and so they almost have to go to other places to become expert or to start their careers or something like that. And I thought. Well, you know, just because they have a different address doesn't mean they're not Hoosiers anymore. And so perhaps maybe we should be following those, not, not just statistically, but follow specific people to those different places, uh, help them get the knowledge and skill and experience they need, maybe some of the resources they need, so that when they start their businesses or when they do something different, we can then attract them to Indiana when they start applying the knowledge that they've learned. Uh, that's been – we've tried to do some things of following, trying to identify where our students are going, uh, some statistical. We've looked at alumni, you know, directories and al alumni lists and that sort of thing. There's even been an attempt to follow it through um, – um, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, the uh, Social Security numbers and those kind of things, oh. although there's privacy issues involved with that, uh, to try and identify specifically – What's the addresses? Where are these people going by zip code or by county or something? And uh, there's been some work on that, and that's why we can somewhat tell that there's people going into Chicago and, and some of the smaller colleges, for example, Tri-State up in Angola. You'll have a, an area where most of their graduates seem to go in, in southern Michigan, northern Indiana, north, or northwest Ohio kind of thing. Uh, but by and large, it's been difficult to tell where they go specifically. But it has to do with a lot of different factors. Number one seems to be job, and then there's kind of lifestyle things beyond that. What about um, international? Has that been more of a trend lately? Are we losing more of our top uh, students to perhaps uh, a, a more exciting life where they travel overseas for a few years? Well, you're always going to have folks who, who are going to do that, whether it's in the Kelly School business. And I should mention that that's where my research center is. Uh, the deans would like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, certainly in, in finance, uh, engineering, uh, any of the uh, medical sciences, you're going to see a fair number of people uh, migrating overseas, uh, whether for temporary stay or uh, permanency. I think that, that at issue uh, probably here and, and what I see uh, as being the important fact is that what we want in Indiana is a well-educated workforce. Whether the folks were born here or they've moved here, uh, both of those are fine. Whether many of our young people uh, uproot themselves and, and decide to live someplace uh, different – that they perceive as more exciting. It's really important for us to focus on, on getting our folks educated and attracting more educated people here. That's an important point because uh, the economic development game, the game of attracting industry, has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. It used to be that you could locate a plant someplace and attract a workforce. Now it's the opposite. Now the, the, work, the, 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 uh, the facilities that people are building are going to where the workforce is. Uh, so that it, it's becoming more important for, for Indiana, any state or any community, to try and keep the kinds of workers there that they want to do. If they have a targeted industry-type program, we want to attract more high-tech or life sciences mm -hmm. or something like that. It's more that, I mean, you, you can do some things to your city, physical structure and those kind of things that make it more attractive. And that's part of the game. But you have to have a workforce at some point in the area that they can use because the knowledge is becoming very specialized. In many ways, companies are starting to be more interested in having people that have a specific skill that can, they can do that thing that that company needs to do. Uh, and so the more of those that we can attract or keep to Indiana, the better off we'll be in some general sense anyway. What do you see as government's role in this, um, you know, keeping in this retention? Um, I'm, and I, I – 
I guess I'm wondering how seriously they take this, or, or you know, state Indiana state government takes this. I'm, or how creatively uh, they're willing to, or they've shown a history of, of thinking out of the box. I'm thinking, for example, um, of it's kind of a WPA style. Uh, if you really want to keep those people in the state, if you really think they have value, you know, you you could actually do some job creation until they can find jobs um, on their own. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, there's a lot of people trying to do new things because the workforce has changed and because economic development as, a, as an attraction uh, uh, game has changed too. Uh, we can do some things with the physical infrastructure of the state. That's very important. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, in, in our, we've been big in distribution for many years in Indiana because of our location central to a lot of population and business. But that game is more now than just having big distribution centers and, and that sort of thing. Uh, for example, right now on our highways, there are a lot more semi-trucks than there used to be. And the reason for that is that what's in those trucks is inventory, not just cargo. And what companies are doing are trying to reduce the cost they have, fixed costs they have in big buildings, distribution centers, uh, those kinds of things. And so they're putting it on the road. Is that the just-in-time thing that we hear about? It's a version of Mm -hmm. just-in-time. But it's also the companies trying to reduce their costs so they can compete with China and India and Brazil and those kind of places. Uh, That means we need to have better highway systems. We have to have more intermodal type of things. So there's some physical structural structural things that we can do to help make sure that industry, once, once we get it here, can actually be here. We can actually support that business physically. Uh, communities can do a lot to make themselves more attractive. But at some point at the end of the day, these students have or these people have uh, have some desires to do something. Carol and I were just looking at some statistics before we came on the air here. I, one of the things that I found is that not all the brain drain is in people in their early 20s. In fact, that's kind of where it starts. Uh, but it seems, it seems to reach a zenith when people are in their early 30s, hmm. probably because at that point, uh, they have some means. In the early years, they don't have a lot of money yet. They're just getting started on their career. But by the time they're in their early 30s, they might have some means. They aren't fully, ve- excuse me, fully vested in their jobs yet, and they may have still have a little mobility. Uh, we interestingly lose some population in the 65 to 69 range. Uh, again, because those people are mobile, more mobile. The kids are gone. The mortgage may be paid down. The, the, uh, their retirement fund is available to them. And so they take off too. What retirement fund? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, up until a couple weeks ago, they were doing that. (laughs) Well, I I do think that uh, one of the things that that I was very pleased to see recently in talking about government and and what it can do, uh, and I think most of what government can do is set the tone, create a climate. uh, For change, uh, the whole idea of funding the first two years of college Mm -hmm. uh, for Hoosier students uh, getting out of high school, I think, is a a major leap forward in terms of, you know, now whether it gets funded or not, I don't know, that's still up in the air. But if we're able to accomplish that and the fact that we're getting more people into college and experiencing it Mm -hmm. and putting behind them whatever thoughts they had about high school, you know, whether it was good or bad. And uh, you probably all have talked to high school students uh, who thought it was really boring. Uh, Get them off to college, get them to Ivy Tech or IU or any of the other universities Mm -hmm. and get them to get that experience that begins to push their minds into a broader world of of experience and the ability to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really changes once you get into, into college. There, there have also been plans about tri- or, or uh, suggestions about maybe trying to get into debt forgiveness on student loans mm-hmm. of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can do so many things. We have been for many years on making, you know, tax incentives and doing things to attract business and something. But now we're having to get into those things that are more personal in nature, more things that affect you as an individual. Mm-hmm. All right. You're listening to Noon Edition. Uh, my, our guests today are Mark Akers, who's from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and Carol Rogers, who is the Deputy Director and Information Officer for the Indiana Business Research Center. Our topic is the brain drain. If you want to join us, please call 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. We're taking a short break. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU thanks all who support public radio. Next time you're visiting one of our business supporters, please let them know that you appreciate their support of WFIU. Perhaps you're involved in decision-making at a business or profession in the WFIU listening area. If you'd like your message to reach WFIU listeners, you can find out more about benefits of underwriting with a call to 1-800-662-3311 or a visit to our website at wfiu.org. Our topic is the brain drain today. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest Mark Akers from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University and Carol Rogers, Deputy Director and Information Officer for the Indiana Business Research Center, which is affiliated with the Kelly School of Business here at IU. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-285. Uh, 9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And here's an email that came in. It begins, would you agree that part of the perception that young people have that Indiana doesn't have many good jobs is the fact that very few large companies like Lilly have their national or international headquarters here? Should our governors, mayors, and taxpayers be giving the sort of tax incentives that it takes to get a growing company to move its headquarters, or do you feel that the scarce incentive money should instead be used to help our native companies grow? Mark, you want to start? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Indiana has, has longed for, for, I don't know, since the earth was cooling, has been a branch state. We have had very few uh, headquarters of any companies, large companies, here in Indiana for a long time. And many that we had eventually ended up moving out. A lot of it has to do uh, – where headquarters are, are, uh, are located has to do with a lot of factors other than geographic location or incentives and those kind of things. Where stockholders are, where CEOs are, where the company started, all sorts of things. That's why the auto industry is in Michigan and not in Indiana, even though the basis of the industry was here – Henry Ford and his, his uh, uh, mass, uh, you know, mass production techniques drew it all up there, and we didn't do that, and so it's up there. And we have Cook Group. And we have Cook Group, and we, and we have uh, a lot of things. And, and, and even if we, and when we had them, they were not evenly distributed around the state either. They tended to be in the larger cities in Indiana. Uh, in some measure because that's where the people were that started them. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that we have with high tech is that high tech as a group, that's a very more, uh, very vague term, but a lot of the co- people who start technology firms don't move them. Uh, you know, we're not going to get the headquarters of Microsoft, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and so it's, we're going to be uh, kind of doing a battle there. One of the things that having a, a good technical workforce, having some, some uh, things from the Kelly School of Business and other types of, of education programs here, if we can keep those people, those people who start jobs here, will by and large keep those companies here. A lot of exceptions, but by and large where, where companies start is where their headquarters anyway tend to remain. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one uh, comment I might make is that Lilly is headquartered. Uh, actually uh, in Indiana, and and they uh, recently have made some moves with with their business that I think might uh, prove to be the wave of the future, which are more collaborative businesses, uh, not just your straight-line subsidiaries or or branches, but where they're helping other businesses grow that are connected with them Mm -hmm. but not necessarily wholly owned by them. And I think over time, more and more businesses are moving into these kinds of strategic partnerships where they are doing more collaboration with each other, uh, where uh, small companies can grow in any environment, uh, including Indiana, but but where eventually it may not be uh, a headquarters issue as much as a quantity issue, having a lot of those uh, young startups – 
grow into nice middle-aged uh, companies that uh, employ a lot of people. What's happening in the new economy in many ways, and because of the, the, the uh, productivity issue and competition around the world, is that many companies are now outsourcing a lot of their activities to smaller groups that specialize in that because they, can, they know more about it, they're better at doing it, uh, the smaller company, than this big company who could, has been in the past doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there is more of an opportunity for those smaller companies as opposed to the big, massive company with the world headquarters mm-hmm. here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a fo- couple of phone calls, and we have an email. So let's go to the phone first, and it's Eric. Eric, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm calling from DePaul University today and uh, wanted to uh, – go back to the issue of government's role and uh, kind of addressing this issue of brain drain. Um, I'm a recent uh, graduate of uh, IU, have two degrees, graduated in 2005 from the School of Public Environmental Affairs, and then uh, graduated with my graduate degree from the School of Public Environmental Affairs in, in 2007. My wife and I relocated to um, uh, Washington, D.C., where I did some consulting work, and then, uh, you know, we, we were born and raised in Indiana and decided after about nine or ten months that it was time to get back to Indiana. Uh, fortunately, uh, Lindsay, my wife, was able to get a job at, at IU, and she works at the Kelly School of Business, and I work at DePaul University in a development role. But um, I, I think it is an issue for, for the state of Indiana that a lot of our young college graduates are leaving, and I think government absolutely has a, uh, uh, a way to, to at least address this issue. I think the state government can really do a lot by amending our Constitution to allow for more professional local government than uh, what we have now. I think the, when you have a professional uh, management of local government, these people are trained in understanding what it takes to uh, generate economic development. And we're really, uh, we're, we're really competing with some of these other communities that do allow professional management. And, uh, you know, elected officials, I, I, I'm just afraid they're, they're not as capable or, uh, you know, quite understanding of what it takes to, uh, to attract uh, businesses and, and, and develop the workforce. You're talking about reorganizing the entire state government, basically, no, not the, uh, not on, the, the, on the county level. In, Indian, Indiana yes. cities are among the most highly regulated cities in the country. They, they are restricted in how they raise money, how they spend money. Uh, they, there's all sorts of different rules and regulations that they, that they get from the state that they have to comply with even though many of them are, when they start off, basically unfunded, having to do with environmental issues and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. And so one of the things that, that, that some cities have suggested and many other states have tried is to reduce the amount of regulation that cities have. And some way, one of them has been to try and allow cities more freedom in raising money the way they see fit, having the state maybe oversee that it's being spent properly, as you know, being used for public purposes, that sort of thing. But allowing them more freedom in, 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 in uh, raising the money and then letting the local f- officials, uh, you know, deal with the voters in doing that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Let their constituents be the guide to how, what methods they feel is fit to, or uh, proper for them to raise the money. That may then give them the ability to uh, make improvements that they need to make in order to su- physically support some of these businesses. Indiana, for many years, has had a number of cities on uh, sewer bans. And that has been increasing in, 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 in the number of cities. The rate of that increase is going up because our infrastructure is, is getting old and wearing out. And, but the local communities don't have the ability, because of the restrictions they have, to raise enough money oftentimes to make those improvements. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also, <clears throat> Eric, you have a, a good point, too, in the fact that um, in thinking about our local governments, it's not just cities and towns that we have. We also have county uh, elected officials. We have 1,008 townships. Uh, we have a lot of government at the local level. Uh, I heard, an interesting, heard a very interesting t- statistic that Indiana has about uh, 6 million people in its population, but we have more elected officials than any other state in the union. And that's I, incredible I, to yeah. me. That's probably true. <laughs> right. And it seems like a, a, a just a gross waste of resources. I mean, I think that you know, when you can hire, and I know SPIA produces some of the most well-trained public managers, and these, there are no jobs for these people unless they want to work in state government or worked in a, uh, a very political environment. 
I think SPIA uh, does a very good job of emphasizing the management aspect of, the, uh, of what public management really is. And it's not just necessarily politics, although there is a political component to it. But uh, there's no jobs for these folks here. Uh, like I said, I had to go out to Washington, D.C. Uh, I couldn't get Indiana out of my bones, so we got back. But uh, a lot of people have to go outside of Indiana for that reason uh, alone. There's, there's too many elected officials that are out running for office and, and not enough room for the people who actually are trained in that, uh, in that area of expertise. Well, I think, Eric, you, you know, as you know, I'm sure there has been a lot of talk about uh, restructuring county and local government in Indiana. And so maybe you, know, you can work on some of your legislators about how they might want to, do, to approach that in the next legislative session. In Monroe County, there's a referendum um, on this November's ballot to do away with one county position in Monroe County, the Perry, Perry Township Assessor. Um, position. So, uh, you know, you've got a little bit of hope, but <laughs> it's, it's going pretty slowly. Absolutely. All well, right. I appreciate you guys taking the time to speak with me. Sure, Eric. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Um, Misha is next. Misha? Hi. Um, before the break, you were talking about funding different things for especially the first two years for people to get into college and as if that's like the the thing that's going to really educate you and um one of the things is that if you were to do that what you're kind of admitting is saying that the only time education really begins is when you get to a place where somebody where your teachers can be um specialized and uh, have a master's degree, say at least, to be teaching you, and then you begin learning. And then I hear recently that we've determined that we're quite behind um, the Europeans, and I agree. I went to school being a professor's kid. I went to school for a while in England, and at 11 was experiencing in their what they would what we would call their public school in not a really expensive part of London, uh, master's degree which would be doctors of mathematics teaching me algebra, doctors of, math, of, of history teaching me. And I got this huge jump ahead of the other kids because I graduated from North High School. And even though at that time we had quite a few people that were specialists still hanging on from the old days when you needed to be have a specialty before you were actually able to get your education degree and be a teacher, now it is not required that you have a specialty to teach. So it is boring. I could imagine it would be terribly boring for students who, uh, I actually did experience once where I had a teacher who was the coach who was given Western civilization as a subject, and he knew, he admitted to us he knew nothing about it, and we were just going to go from the book. Well, you know, luckily my dad's in that, so I asked if he could come in five times, and that's what we did. So we had a, an interesting class. But if you if the person doesn't know something, and you as a student want to ask about it, into it, you can't get that from from somebody who's not a specialist, who's only a management person, basically, only a person that has been taught theories of teaching or management. Um, and I just wanted to say that if we were as as educated in the basics, I mean, clearly, standards of English so we can communicate with other people in other countries don't speak our language. Um, clearly, we would, if we were that way by the time we were 18, like they are, then we wouldn't necessarily have to go to college. You know, it would be the people who want to go on to specialties that would have to go to college. We're, this foolishness of thinking, oh, well, we're kids, and we we are not going to, you know, have, um, we're not going to start our, our, our serious study until we're 20. We know that psychologically that we're, we're past our time for learning. We don't have the basics. Anyway, I just thought I would point out my experience with it, and I'm hoping that, our, that we will require our high school students, our, our high school teachers, to be taught have to have a specialty as well as the the training to to teach well theories to teach well and let them go for it have good teachers and let them go for it instead of putting this vice hold on their theories and how to teach in, in any given year okay misha any, okay. any, any comments Thank you. reaction 
Uh, I've, I've, this brings to mind, I, I did some writing some years ago, uh, and I looked at a number of different issues that Indiana, really in almost any place, needs to address. One of them was the education system. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in, in, in this regard, in Indiana, in, in, in my thinking, if we're going to be attracting industry here, we, we, don't, we don't need to have a, a really good education system. We need to have the best education. Someplace, someplace in the world, in the country, has the best education system. Why isn't that us? Why isn't that here someplace? And a lot of it has to do with the way we approach it, the way we hire teachers, the regulations and rules that they have to go through. I can't teach in high school. I'm not qualified. I can teach master's degree classes at IU and, and you know, graduate classes and all sorts of them, but I'm not qualified to teach in high school. Uh, uh, this, that's just the way the system works. Uh, we don't pay enough. There's two sides to the education system, though. One side is the schools, the teachers, the equipment, on and on and on. But the other side is the students. And we spend almost no time or no money on trying to, uh, to look at the barriers to learning that kids bring with them to the classroom. And so while, we're, while even if you had a great teacher standing up in front of the class, they may, be not, they may not be able to get through to some of the students who are dealing with who knows what kind of personal issues or issues outside the classroom that we pay almost no attention to. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a combination there that other countries are able to do through their systems in many ways. When I was in China, I had students, when I was teaching, this was a a lower level class, uh, like a sophomore level classes. I was teaching two classes in English, difficult classes, comparative economics and business strategy, Uh, English textbooks, everything. While they were taking my two classes, they were taking eight other classes. They were taking a total of ten classes, the other other eight in Chinese, my two in English. And I had no trouble at all passing everybody in my class. These kids are working very hard. They've come through poverty and other things. They don't want any part of that anymore. And many of their, many of their parents who are working parents, they work in companies that are there in Ningbo, they have to save a long time and put up a lot of sacrifices for these kids to go to this college because it's kind of expensive. But then they also keep working because they want their kids to come here to the states to go to our universities and our education system here. Now, when I worked with Japanese companies, we'd send them. We'd have Japanese managers coming over here, like when we did the Subaru plant up at Lafayette. We had to make sure that we had special schools set up in order for their students, their Japanese students, the students of these managers coming over, to have a place to go to school, because they were afraid that if if they put their kids in our public school systems, that by the time they went back to Japan, they would be way behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had to come up with language, culture, aside from the academic courses over there to keep their students, make them feel as though their students were going to keep up with the Japanese. There's, you know, it's, it's part of our history. It's, we, our system has evolved over time. But we really need to rethink this stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. We have uh, another phone call and then we have a couple emails we're going to go to. So let's go to the phone <laughs> and DJ first. DJ? Yeah, I just uh, wondered if... Uh uh, in terms of the brain drain, I wanted to brain drain. I wanted to amplify what the gentleman caller said before: is that the mayor, I think, is hiring a consultant, and they're going to pay him eighty thousand dollars. They're looking for an outside consultant to talk about the South Walnut Street corridor and how to develop. And I'm thinking, you mean we don't have anybody locally that could do that? The people from SPIA or businessmen, and uh, the HT itself, I think, has this thing called community columnists that right. don't pay those, but then you hire Mike Pearson, who's out of town, to write for, I think he's living outside of Bloomington, he's writing a column for a movie review. So uh, are we shooting ourselves in foot here? We're hiring people from out of town, and we're not hiring local people. I wondered if they could address, if somebody could address that. I can address Mike. Mike doesn't write for us anymore, but he's in Denver now, and it was a, yeah. it was a, it was a syndicated column, and it, it uh-huh. you know it was it was in a package of stuff we were already getting, so we actually weren't paying Mike anything for it. But uh-huh. well, I think the the question is a, a good one, and certainly you've been getting some excellent calls this morning. But I I think we do need to be careful not to box ourselves into it has to be from here. Uh, we live in a global. Uh, economy. We live on the globe. Uh, I think there's uh, so much interaction now that we can have with people from uh, many different places and cultures that can help us inform what it is that we're going to do. Now, I don't know the specifics about the corridor issue, 
Uh, so I'm really not addressing that specifically. That may be a very good point. Why not go to SPIA, Mark? Uh, <laughs> but, but I think we have to be careful not to box ourselves into a single place. We are part of many places. And a lot of the excitement of living today in the 21st century is, uh, particularly for me living in Indiana, is that I see that so many citizens and companies are engaged globally. Mm-hmm. Now, that was it's very different from when you brought Subaru Zuzu here, mm-hmm. Mark. That, that was mm-hmm. kind of a tipping point, I think, exactly. for us. We opened ourselves up to a lot of, a lot of things with, with the Subaru plant and other Japanese and other international companies that have come in in that time frame and since. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, but the economy really has gotten global. Uh, even many services now are being done uh, instead of here in Indiana, outside of Indiana. But manufacturing plants are having to compete. Small companies, local companies, are now having to compete worldwide. It's just as easy for a machine shop in Ningbo, China, mm-hmm. to make the part and ship it here the next day, just as it is for the guy here in Bloomington or up in Logansport or someplace else to make that same part and get it to the customer the next day. But part of the issue there, though, the, at least that I've seen, is that what we we have begun to see in our manufacturing and services industries is that we are uh, working much more in a knowledge-based economy where we do have places like Warsaw, like Bloomington with Cook, uh, that are really driving the export mm-hmm. of our materials and services. So we have a lot of, of uh, those high-tech goods, if you will, right. that people need. And this to me is the most telling uh, issue is that we need better educated workers to, to fill those higher-tech jobs while the lower-tech uh, is going on in other countries. There seems to be something of a combination of factors going on here because as much as we would like to, and and rightly so, have some critiques of our education system, uh, we have some major universities here, especially IU and Purdue and and a few others that really produce high-quality graduates Mm -hmm. to the point where people elsewhere want to steal them away from us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like we're producing junk out of Indiana. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have some very excellent universities here. But at the same time, they do want to go to other places too. And so we have this combination of forces that where we produce, we're, we're taking our, our high school graduates, putting them through the universities here, creating some really top-notch people, but those people now have some marketability. Right. And so it, at that point, it then starts becoming, for some of them anyway, a competition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have to be able to compete better with some of these things we've been talking about today. Or lure them back at some point. Or lure them back. And so, right, like we did with Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's an email that came in. It says, do the guests see the environmental arena and alternative energy as a growth industry for Indiana and a good career option for our young people? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the energy area era uh, is fully upon us, and, and uh, we've seen some, uh, at least a couple of companies, who've already located here in Indiana who are going to work specifically on fuel cell technology, uh, biofuels, et cetera. I heard something interesting uh, this morning on the uh, science uh, note about algae. And hopefully uh, in Indiana we're growing a lot of algae uh, to feed that biofuel need. So I think that's an up-and-coming arena for us. I would think you'd want to be a windmill repairman in this. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen those? Yes, I have. That's why I said that. Yeah, I was just thinking somebody's got to take care of all of those. Well, there there was a – many people have read the the Friedman book, uh, World is Flat kind Mm -hmm. of thing. He's got a follow-up book now that's interesting too. Is it flatter? Is it flatter now? No, no. The book, what's it called? Hot, hot, flat and crowded, I guess it is. But – but in any event, uh, when, uh, one of the points he makes in the earlier book was, and it's a little outdated now, but he said the quickest way for us to get to $20 a barrel oil is to get to $100 a barrel oil. Uh, of course, we've gone way beyond that now. But the idea is once we did hit some point, mm-hmm. people did start taking this stuff seriously. That's right. And we started talking about maybe going to alternative fuels. We weren't buying as many SUVs, which, you know, the, the sales of those dropped off dramatically. Mm-hmm. And we started having people maybe a little more carpooling, a little mm-hmm. bit more, uh, you know, public transportation uh, usage. 
and, and so you can kind of see how the price of that has affected things. And I think at least while for a while anyway, while it's going to remain high, and it probably will because, you know, other parts of the world are using dramatically higher levels of, of uh, petroleum-based products. Uh, I think there is probably going to be some drive to to do those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I've got another email. It says, speaking of the government, no one has mentioned a policy that has irked me uh, since I moved here in 2003. As a graduate student coming from out of state, I will forever be classified as out of state. This is state law. Despite the fact that I own a condo with my wife, who is an MCCSC teacher, and we have established ourselves as part of the community, and irrespective of the state taxes, residency, voter registration, etc., I will forever be labeled as an outsider. I have met many people outside of the academic environment, and together my wife and I truly feel a part of the community. Yet, I now have higher student loan costs as a result from this state policy, and I have no motivation to stay here in the long run. Why? Well, the government doesn't seem motivated to retain out-of-staters, but rather they have the attitude that they will take as much money from me before we leave. Who wants to comment on that? Hmm. <laughs> well, it certainly Where does, does seem like a, uh, an incentive uh, for those who do live in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it uh, obviously, citing your case uh, for the emailer, uh, it's a disincentive uh, for you to stay. I didn't realize that uh, you would be labeled out of state forever, but that within the university you would be classified that way. So I I'm, wrote a note to myself to to check on that state law. Mm-hmm. I'll make some general comment about incentives for students in, in any event. Uh, I have a son uh, who graduated from Purdue University as a chemist. That he was the top graduate out of the, uh, uh, in the chemistry out of Purdue. And um, uh, through the years, he had to work part-time jobs to, as he went through college. And, of course, we had to help with the payments and all that because he could not qualify for any scholarships because he wasn't from a poor family. He wasn't from, he didn't have any special mm-hmm. needs. He didn't fall into any of the categories mm-hmm. of uh, those places or, or those groups that have special scholarships right. and help for different kinds of people. And, uh, and and so he had to do all this. Now, luckily, he wanted to stay in Indiana, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who would not do that. And uh, and, and Mike shouldn't be the exception. He should be the rule where, where somebody can get some help because of uh, academic performance and merit and that sort of thing alone. All right. We are out of time, but I want to give Carol the opportunity. Can you tell us how to find uh, Stats Indiana? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and thanks for that uh, push on that. It's uh, www.stats.indiana.edu. There's, there are a whole lot of statistics about uh, – you can break it down by subject and by geographic area and by a lot of things. Oh, so. and we have a, uh, something called a USA County Profile that profiles counties in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, showing Indiana is not parochial. All right. <laughs> we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Mark Akers and Carol Rogers for being here with us today. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.